0: Good afternoon, Cherise.
1: Good afternoon. A rare afternoon recording session.
0: It's not how I want to spend my Friday afternoon.
1: Oh, come on. I actually asked Stanley today, at what point do we stop doing making it up? Or am I locked into this commitment for life?
0: Uh, you mean like, when can you go on a hiatus and just not do it anymore or stop doing it, period?
1: No, it was, it was
0: mainly a joke.
1: I said, oh, I've, no. I've locked myself into a commitment where I have to talk to Eugene every week. Forever. Yeah. Indefinitely.
0: Things don't have to go on forever, though.
1: No. I mean, we die.
0: Well, yeah, that too. (laughs) That too.
1: No, some things... This is not an announcement that we're ending to listeners, by the way.
0: No. It's not. But I do think that things don't have to last forever. I used to think things had to last forever. No,
1: I don't think they have to. Or try
0: to. But having timelines... I think, you know, back in the day when... You would hear someone retire, they're like the top of their game, or they just stopped doing something. You'd be like, oh, that's sad. But I think when you're deep into something, you actually understand that you can definitely have ebbs and flows in terms of passion and commitment to something.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a skill to be able to know when to walk away. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest. Through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
0: Making it up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in.
1: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us.
0: If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it.
1: Let's do it. So we did something different this week. You opened it up to our Discord community. Shout out to our Patreon supporters. You gave them 10 subjects that you were kind of interested in for today's episode and asked people what they liked. We got a bunch of responses. Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised that we got responses. It is interesting to know what people picked. Mm -hmm. And then I found myself. Feeling like, oh, I should just do what people picked, but also I was like, I still have to genuinely be interested in it. So anyway, the only other person who was interested in my subject is Shored. So here's to you. My topic this week: what is masterclass actually selling? And it's from an Atlantic article by Karina Chicano. It's quite a long read. The first half is actually just kind of an overview of Masterclass as a product and also as a company. So I'll give a little bit of an explanation, though. I do feel like most people have probably seen a masterclass ad. I feel it's super likely because I've seen so many ads for masterclass, Instagram, YouTube, casually on the Internet everywhere. And it opens up with like a famous person saying something pithy. They're usually like sitting alone in a dimly lit room and the lights like shining on their face and then it moves to some kind of like process shot. So what Masterclass is, is this streaming platform, essentially, that was launched in 2015 with three classes, Dustin Hoffman on acting, Serena Williams on tennis, James Patterson on writing. And it was co-founded by this person named David Roger. He was given a gift of half a million from an angel investor to just do whatever he wanted with it, which he recognizes is just like a pure gift that you know not everyone gets. Must
0: be nice.
1: Yes. And then this is directly from the article. Chokana writes, Rajier already knew life was changing at a much faster rate than it had for his parents' generation. What you learn in school no longer lasts you through your career. His research showed that people are willing to invest in personal growth and education, but many feel ripped off by their education. He isn't referring only to formal education. So essentially, Rajier wanted to make education entertaining and came up with this format of masterclass where he finds people at the very top of their game to create these video classes that are kind of Skillshare format as opposed to like Netflix TV episodes. It's kind of like a mix between the two. Just a little bit about the business raised 135 million in venture capital from 2012 to 2018, currently has 85 classes across nine different categories such as culinary arts design film and tv writing etc do you think that's a sufficient explanation yeah of what i think it's sufficient okay,
0: cool but one thing for certain is that these are all how do i put this would you consider them non-essential skills in a way like so we'll
1: get to that okay what i actually wanted hold on to that are these non-essential skills great question Remembering our Quibi conversation and how I downloaded Quibi, I felt like prior to this episode, I had to do due diligence. So I'm currently on a 24-hour free trial for Masterclass. Mm -hmm. And I watched two episodes. I watched an Aaron Sorkin class called Intention and Obstacle. And Aaron Sorkin is a screenwriter, West Wing. And I watched a Hans Zimmer class, who is a film score composer. And I, I watched them just so I could get like a personal perspective on what these classes are. And first of all, production quality is super high. I think that's the most baseline thing about this, like high level documentary production. I found that it was actually useful and entertaining, but useful and entertaining as in they try very hard to be useful and entertaining, but not in a lame way. Like, as in both of the ones I happened to watch, Sorkin and Zimmer, I felt like we're being genuine in talking honestly about their profession and what they do, and also, you know, trying to be entertaining along with it. And I like appreciated their honesty. You know, they're not just like sugarcoating what it takes to be a film score composer or a screenwriter. However, my main takeaway is that you would have to be really self disciplined and guided to actually make use of it
0: can you elaborate on that
1: because i think this goes with what you're saying i mean they're not essential skills in the sense that it's not like teaching you how to pay your taxes or oh there is cooking though cooking is a pretty essential skill but let's say you are someone who is a screenwriter and you want to learn from aaron sorkin then there is actually a lot of material there that i believe you could learn from but The main thing that came across to me while watching the masterclass and like kind of browsing through the library is that watching something is not the same thing as getting an education or like quotation marks learning. To learn something isn't just to watch it. And this is not just like a criticism of masterclass. I suppose this is actually true for any video based education where even if you sit down and watch you know, the entirety of Sorkin's class, that doesn't necessarily translate into being able to do screenwriting.
0: Based off of everything you've said, what is the value? And does the value differ from person to person? Meaning, if you're not a screenwriter like yourself, but you're a writer, will you still derive value from it? Versus if you're just a generally curious and creative person?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Because yeah.
0: for the most part, these classes only a handful of people from each industry. Correct. It's not like there's twenty chefs and there's no. twenty screenwriters. It's really just the the cream of the crop. It, it's a very game.
1: select group. I would I would say there's actually a lot that I would be interested in watching. Like I think they did a really good job of making a considered selection, and then producing material that is of a high standard but that doesn't necessarily translate into well it translates into value but like what type of value i think that's a really good question there's one really normal value which is it's entertainment if you have the money like if you are willing so right now the all access annual pass is 180 usd a year which is obviously high but not i would not say totally unthinkable okay like to pay that much for this material. And especially if you cut, if you decided, oh, I'm going to cut my subscriptions to like Hulu and Disney Plus and Netflix, I'm just going to watch Masterclass then it could work out to be worth it. Um, So there's, there's that just entertainment. Like I said, like mini documentaries, it has value in just being like documentation of these really talented people. So for example, like Margaret Atwood, she's this famous author and she said, in this Atlantic article that she considered it to be an opportunity to just document her writing process and her career. So that's why I called it like a mini documentary. So there's that, like the entertainment level as like a general creative person. If you have some baseline level of knowledge in that field and you were self-guided, like I said, then I do think you could get tips from this that would help you but i think that you need to have some sort of like a kind of already be introductory level in that field and be kind of looking for a push or like a, re- a refresher for mm-hmm. inspiration and then it's something really interesting that the author of the atlantic suggested is that the biggest base is actually a general audience that just needs more cultural capital, or like, I don't know if that's the right word. Sorry. Like, they need to give themselves as people, like, cultural expertise in order to be better within capitalism, like, to be more attractive employees, to be able to, like, have conversations about these topics.
0: How does it relate back to capitalism, though?
1: Here, let me try to find a quote for you.
0: The reason I ask that is because. Does cultural currency only really have an application within capitalism? And I would argue, no, it doesn't. I think just within any culture or society, it's valuable, regardless of whether it's inherently capitalistic. But I mean, most, most governments today are in some forms capitalistic.
1: Okay, so the company itself, Masterclass, refers to its target customers as CATS, which is an acronym standing for curious, aspiring 30-somethings. And then what I'm going to read next is a quote from the article. Cats are old enough not to be planning to return to school, but young enough in theory that they need help advancing in their career. A cat is a person whose life has become complicated, who has had to put aside some of the things they'd love to do, who isn't exactly doing the thing they dreamed of doing. David Stryber, Masterclass's chief marketing officer, told me, they're anxious about their future, their present, their position relative to that of their peers. They'll talk about having anxiety that their coworkers or the people on their social networks all seem to know more about a subject than they do, Schreiber said, referring presumably to pre-pandemic focus testing. Someone will come to the office party and talk about wine, and then they'll feel like, I don't know enough about wine. And it, it goes on, this quotation from Schreiber. And then the author of the this piece writes. As though it's revealing another layer of unpaid labor, cultural labor, one is expected to do in order to secure the privilege of performing actual labor. So that even if it's not your interest, photography and wine and screenwriting, et cetera, knowing something about those subjects gives you value.
0: I find that such an interesting thing because if you feel like you are not capable of participating in the conversation, why not just change your position to be someone that's soaking in the knowledge and then come over the top and or create value within the conversation by talking about something you are an expert about? Like, why would you need to go and become an expert in something you're not even fucking passionate about, right? That makes no sense to me. You know what I mean? If I'm having a conversation with you, I'll listen. If, you, if you're like, especially video games, right? Like, I think you are much more uh, in tune with the world of gaming. I'll come in. And I'll be, oh, that's really interesting. Ask questions. But then, you know, if there's an appropriate way for me to, to tangent off to something and I feel like my inadequacies need me to get some sort of sort of cultural win within my peer group, why not push it into a different lane?
1: Well, I mean, I admire the position you take, but I don't. I mean, well, first of all, if the masterclass chief marketing officer is saying this and that's their target customer, I'm gonna go ahead and say that some part of this is true because they're making money. And You're right, like you're right. I'm just commenting on reaching, culture in general. Oh no, totally. I completely see that, but I don't, I do sympathize. I don't think it's necessarily like, oh, I need to be an expert now in this subject, but it's kind of like how in an office environment, weaker personalities than yourselves will like watch sports games so that they can talk about the sports game or you know watch some TV show that's really popular so that there's that common topic and it's not i th- i think also it can be a smart strategy for bonding with your team like showing interest in the things they're interested in and going out and acquiring knowledge about those things But I I still take your point that you don't necessarily have to go to Masterclass to like solve this problem.
0: Yeah. which it was interesting because they're not even really using it for actual professional application. Yes. It's not a chef that is trying to get better at cooking.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they know that, essentially. Like, Masterclass themselves know that their name is basically a giant misnomer because Masterclass as a definition, like before it became a proper noun, was meant to be like the highest, most advanced class for like a small select group of people. But anyway, masterclass is really for the most general of general audiences. And it's like you said, it's not really education for professional careers. It's actually maybe the most value someone might get from it is discussions about process and navigating life like there's quite a few lessons that are actually just about like people's biographies essentially like them talking about the challenges they went through their experiences and i think those can be interesting in the same way that you know you read biographies and you read memoirs and stuff like that and you can learn like indirectly about living life as a certain profession but it's not like you said like applying specific skills. Like I'm not about to like having watched all of Aaron Sorkin's classes then be able to write a West Wing type script. Yeah. And I have no illusion of that happening. And one thing that I wanted to talk to you about which I think is interesting is whether you think we are in a particularly self-help and self-development interested era right now.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely subscribe to what you mentioned in that I was, I didn't necessarily disagree with your statement about how people are using this as a means to advance up the sort of call it the corporate capitalistic ladder, right? That was not, I just wanted to understand with a bit more connection what exactly that meant. Yeah. But you see now, and I don't have enough. Uh, visibility on it to be able to explain it properly. But I do hear mentions that we're now in such a a coach-focused world, right? Where everyone has a coach for Not everyone. Those with the ability to afford it have a coach for everything. Like as a child, oh, I have uh, a piano teacher. I have a coach for this, et cetera, et cetera. So what I find interesting is that coaches, I think, are helpful. But I think in the long term, I don't really see the same level of value within coaching unless you can f- fully decouple yourself and understand learning isn't necessarily purely driven by coaching, right?
1: What, what do you think it is about coaching that you feel like is not as successful in terms so of this learning? This is how
0: I look at it. You need to both combine the macro and the micro. So coaches in the micro sense are helpful. Right. I'm I, I believe that if I'm going to learn how to play the piano, it's going to take me a hell of a long time to get to a certain level if I do it on my own because I have no no baseline. But then at the same time, I have realized ugh, this is so stupid because we talk about Fortnite all the time. But like I watch f- Fortnite tutorial videos. Right. And what I find interesting is some of the better uh, people providing guides they relate it back to some other mental model or framework. So they'll be like, you know what? There are certain instances of why you're not getting better. And the reason why you're not getting better is because you're not analyzing, understanding how your mistakes are occurring. So without the ability to have the zoomed up perspective and understand at the foundation and core, every challenge you encounter has generally the same process towards solving it and unsticking yourself. Yeah, But if you think that it's it all happens in these acute situations, then in reality, that's incorrect. So that's why I think that if you're too caught in the weeds and always in and around a coach, you'll never have the opportunity to zoom out and find a way to create your own personal framework to solve challenges, which is why for me, you know, one thing that's helpful about running your own business or trying to do your own thing is that you soon understand that. All you're doing is solving problems and the problem today might be an accounting problem, but the problem tomorrow might be a production problem, but they're actually at the very core, the same thing. So once you understand that, hey, you know what, I know how I'm going to learn and get better at something, then it's almost infinite in terms of what things you can take on, but you still need to get to that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, one reason it's funny that you brought up Fortnite, because one of the reasons I picked this subject is because I wrote the briefing intro this past Monday and I wrote it about Fall Guys, which is a multi, massive multiplayer battle royale type game where winner takes all. You play online with up to 60 people. There are five rounds. At the end, there's only one winner. My partner and I have been playing a lot of it. And like I said in the briefing, I am not good at this game. I'm just objectively not good at this game. And in the briefing, I wrote, I struggle because I was having a lot of fun, but then I kept wanting to be better. And my desire to be better was getting the way of me, like having fun. So either I accept I am the level I am and just enjoy it. Or I like train essentially, like I practice. And then, you know, at the end of that conclusion of the briefing, I said, or, you know, there's a there has to be a mindset where, You try to get better, you know, you look at yourself, you try to solve the problems, but you don't take yourself too seriously so that you're not like you are like depressed at every point. And I think actually that lesson applies, like you said, to like other types of learning and challenges that you're approaching.
0: Since you wrote that, have you continued to play the game and have you gotten better?
1: I have. And I both the answer to both those questions is yes. I've kept playing the game. I have gotten better. I did this is relevant to the masterclass conversation. We sometimes watch other people play, same as you. Okay. Like you're watching tutorial videos for Fortnite. We have watched other people play Fall Guys to figure out how they're beating these levels. But if you don't then go and play Fall Guys and try to do it, you don't actually get better. And it's the same for Fortnite. You can watch as many videos as you want. If you then application to it. Yeah, exactly. And so I think like that's like. This should be extremely obvious about Masterclass slash any video based education platform, which is if you watch it and then do nothing, you are not you didn't really learn anything. Or it's just like head knowledge. Right. Which is like also often a dismissal of formal education where you just memorize things and you regurgitate it on a test and you walk away and has never it's like it never entered your brain or your system at all.
0: Mm-hmm. but do you think that the value you get from improving and the outcome and feeling whatever trumps you just having fun or playing and not having expectations because both can be fun but I would argue that the value that comes with learning while playing trumps just pure fun and sucking <sighs> <laughs> like you can call me competitive but There is something about overcoming adversity that has a stronger feeling than just doing something casually.
1: Okay, this is going to be such like, uh, I don't even know. It's like such a soccer parent thing to say, but like me and gaming, I try to go for most improved player as opposed to like MVP. Like I know I'm not going to be MVP when it comes to gaming. Right. But I, I, will, I will I will get a lot of personal satisfaction if I can see myself as like most improved, which is what you're talking about. And I think that metric applies where if you just understand this is where I started from and like this is how far I've gotten, then then that is what makes a difference. Like the distance that you've gone and not how far you've gone in that point compared to like the best in the game.
0: Correct. I guess for me, it's people understanding. The heights in which overcoming adversity can provide you, right? Like the height and the outcome and the feeling of overcoming adversity and learning when things are difficult is much higher than any sort of quote unquote high you would get from just being casual. Mm. that's how I look at it, and you validate it in a way as a casual gamer, but you feel like as though you've gotten better i mean i'm I, I'm assuming that you're not, you can look back and be like, oh, I'm happy I continued because the feeling and vibe I get from improving is actually quite desirable.
1: Okay. I know I'm taking this to like a deeper place than you maybe intended. Like for gaming, I think I agree with your stance, but like once you said, you know, overcoming challenges and adversity, I did think like overcoming challenges and adversity doesn't always mean like pressing through it. Like, this is the heavy part. But like, let's say you're in a domestic abuse situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of o- course. Of overcoming
1: course. adversity like that doesn't mean I'm going to stay in this. I'm going to change the people around me. I'm going to yep, change the I situation. Agree. 100%. Like, yeah. And I think maybe we talk about overcoming challenge a lot as like pushing through the thing that we're in. What I mean is like that to take yourself out of the situation is escape. Instead of being a solution, yeah. but there are situations where like to yeah. take yourself out is the, well, is the overcoming
0: it's of the challenge. Like, yeah. I think maybe I should, given what you've just mentioned, there probably is a better way. It's, it's what is the most successful outcome? Because as you mentioned, successful outcomes aren't always pushing through and persevering. It's changing. It's overcoming inertia to go to a different place.
1: Well, it's what you said about problem solving, right? Like everything is solving a problem. And I guess what I'm saying is sometimes you have to recognize that the solution to the problem is not, is also a way of like eliminating the problem, whatever that takes. But there's one more thing I wanted to say about Masterclass, which was that the author talks about how you don't get engagement with the instructors. And that's like a key difference between Masterclass and I guess, the term education. And so I was kind of interested in this definition of education as being other people, where education really comes like not just from curriculum, but from being in a situation where you have teachers slash instructors and classmates, like people who are learning along with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's important too, because especially in the specificity of these classes, Not everything is something you can find on Google either as a follow-up.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess I was interested as well because like, you know, we do say a lot of times in this era, like you can learn anything you want to because you can just YouTube it. But is it valid to say no matter what you can Google, there's still a limit because you are doing it individually?
0: Yeah. Because people's ability to see a problem. I always use this example, right? Some people look at an object and look at it face on when there are many facets to it. There's 360 degrees to it, maybe even more if you look up, down, etc. Mm. So, having someone that can provide a different vantage point to help you learn and understand a concept is pretty important. Especially if you personally look at things either always straight on and don't understand nuance or you're so far off axis that you're never able to really grasp the main concept. Yeah. And I felt like when I was learning, as I was growing up, maybe it was just me trying to like forge an identity, but I always felt like I would take things to the next level and try to ask this super specific question when maybe I didn't really understand the core concept Mm. as well as I should have to get to that next point.
1: But you probably helped some other people.
0: Maybe. Or people are just annoyed, like, why is he asking another question?
1: (laughs) That's it. That's it on Masterclass. I will now have to leave after this recording and watch as much as I can in the next 24 hours before they bill me.
0: All right, let's move on then.
1: Tell me what you got this week.
0: My topic this week is Shopify and the hard thing about easy things. This week's topic comes courtesy of the newsletter, Not Boring by Packy McCormick. It's actually Scott from Macon who sent me this. He's like, oh, you'll really enjoy this article. And the piece delves into the reality of what happens when everybody has access to the same tools and the landscape essentially becomes far more democratic. And in this case, it's via the lens of the Canadian-based e-commerce platform Shopify. For those unfamiliar, which I think given today's landscape, like most people are familiar with e-commerce because it dominates or is increasingly dominant within their lives. It's basically a way where any one of us could probably spin up a Shopify store in like a few hours, basically.
1: Basically online shopping to simplify it even further. A lot of the online shopping that we do is powered by Shopify, even if we don't know it. Yeah. All right. So tell me this. This article's super long. Tell me what you wanted to talk about.
0: All right. So back in October 2019, in a video on Twitter, Shopify CEO Toby Lutke said, Amazon is building an empire and Shopify is trying to arm the rebels. So maybe some of our customers might compete with Amazon at some point, but that would be like super cool. And we're not there yet. So one thing that Paki says within this piece that basically sets the tone for the entirety of everything is, but it's not true, really. By giving everyone else access to the same tools, Shopify isn't arming the rebels as much as it's profiting off the chaos created by arming everyone. And Paki goes on to argue that providing everybody with this ease of entry means that if it's that easy, there's no advantage to really doing it. And here's another quote. By making direct-to-consumer, a.k.a. D2C, easier, software like Shopify increases entropy and lowers the probability that any specific company will generate sustained profits. Sharice, you're the English whiz. What does entropy mean?
1: Decreasing, in, decreasing into greater randomness and chaos. Ah. Oh, you... sorry. I use decreasing, but it, it just means there's more and more randomness and
0: chaos. Got it. Good word. Good word. I like entropy. What's also interesting is that arming the rebels has sort of this Robin Hood-esque connotation behind it. But what also happens when you're approaching it from this perspective is that there is inadequate flows of value that go to what essentially are the arms dealers. Because this whole, you know, arming the rebels concept is, I guess, in some ways borrowed from geopolitical situations where you're helping these smaller nation states or these smaller nations rise up against oppressors
1: yeah giving them money arms
0: weapons yeah so in this case the flow of value goes to the arms dealers such as shopify stripe big commerce google facebook fedex ups etc cetera, etc cetera. and because you've sort of flattened competition in certain areas you're really only providing two remaining outlets. Well, yeah, I guess it's it's one A, one B. And it's marketing through paid acquisition or marketing through brand. So paid acquisition would be Facebook ads, Instagram ads, etc. And then brand would be sort of the perception of your brand and how your potential customers perceive it relative to competitors. So there's there's certain parts of this piece that I actually won't get into too much detail because it's so long and I also think it's valuable for you if you're interested to read the piece Uh, but he goes in and delves into the numbers and direct-to-consumer brands themselves aka you know the brand that's releasing shoes that's releasing mattresses etc they're not the ones that are inherently getting rich instead it's the platforms Mm -hmm. and he throws out some pretty astounding numbers Shopify has Delivered 97% year-over-year growth. Commerce, another Shopify competitor, went public and their stock increased by 292% in the first day. And the payment processor Square is up 64% year-over-year.
1: Yeah, and I think the context of this is actually a pretty nuts number as well, which is where because of the pandemic, e-commerce penetration growth grew 10 years in three months and also that where whereas we used to buy 16% of things online, sorry, state space, we we now buy nearly 34% of our things online. So it's like within that context as well, right? Where it looks like this off the charts e-commerce growth, but all of the earnings are going to, as you said, the arms dealers and not DTC.
0: So another interesting angle is the presentation of Harvard Business School professor Michael Porter's legendary five forces and value chain frameworks. So in terms of Five Forces, Porter says that competitive dynamics are based around five forces, competitive rivalry, supplier power, buyer power, threat of substitution, and threat of new entry. If any of these are weak or, weak or weaker than what's currently out there, then you're more competitive. Furthermore, Porter's value chain suggests that, and I quote, competitive advantage cannot be understood by looking at a firm as a whole. It stems from the many discrete activities a firm performs in designing, producing, marketing, delivering, and supporting its product. So in some ways, if you create and own many parts of the chain, you have a competitive advantage. But if you farm it out, you lose advantage. There's other stuff before this next part that I've essentially skipped out. I'm just going to kind of jump to the too long, didn't read conclusion at the end. Thank you. So... Who wins amidst all of this well shopify and e comm platforms because we need them for their services google and facebook because we need somewhere to advertise shipping companies because there's an increasing number of people especially in this current pandemic and going forward that will not be buying in-store the tools to facilitate and essentially track e comm so that would be for example I think MailChimp is a good example. Using newsletters to help send out to your potential customers. It might also be like tracking software to help understand and analyze how your sales are performing. And then the last one, customers also win because there's so much choice. Yeah. And everyone's competing for their dollars and their attention.
1: And we're so aware now of the fact that we can shop around. Like... The article mentions Casper. I think we all know now that Casper is not the only mattress in a box brand. So you can easily compare every mattress brand and find the best deal.
0: Correct. And then obviously the losers by this point should be extremely apparent. It's yeah. the brands. Womp, womp, womp. Yeah. yeah. And Packy also outlines a cycle that happens. Number one, the innovator does something innovative. Number two, a brave few try to copy the innovator. Number three, someone builds software to let everyone do that innovative thing. Number four, the innovative thing is no longer innovative. Five, everyone does what the innovator did, making it hard to stand out and shifting the battleground to audience building and brand. Number six, curation becomes important. And number seven, the next innovator comes along and does something innovative and the cycle starts again. So one thing is that during the gold rush era, there was this concept known as the pick and shovel play, which meant that you didn't want to be the one that was necessarily finding the gold, but you wanted to be the one that was providing the tools to create that final product.
1: Wait, is that analogy in Packy's
0: article? No, I was going to, I was going to encapsulate this on an existing business term.
1: Because that is the closing paragraph of the Atlantic article. Oh, really? Yes. About Masterclass.
0: Oh, interesting. I read the Masterclass article, but it as you know and Cherise was ragging on me the other day that she asked if I read articles and I'm like well sometimes I don't gravitate towards every single piece but anyways yeah in closing you're always going to win if you're a pick and shovel type of business and in the case of this this is especially apparent because the pick and shovel companies uh sometimes they call pick and axe I think but regardless it's like you know the platforms are usually the winners
1: yeah yeah actually i really should have caught on earlier that this is the connection between our two subjects.
0: How, in what context do they say pick and shovel in the Atlantic piece? Because okay, so the closing me,
1: paragraph of the Atlantic piece, the author talks about how it was rarely the prospectors in the California gold rush that struck it rich. And it was the ones who supplied the prospectors with shovels, tents, and jeans that kept the dream alive. Right, so pe- exactly what you're saying about pick and shovels. And then... The closing couple sentences are there's nothing wrong, of course, with supplying people with what they need to pursue their dreams. But it seems that during this time of growing wealth and social inequality, the jeans and shovels have become largely symbolic and the prospecting they facilitate, the endless panning for something, anything ever more intangible. There is no goal, really. The panning is the goal. And so the author Chicano is making this drawing an analogy between, you know pick and shovel suppliers to masterclass where masterclass is keeping people's dreams alive of different passions and interests and improvement etc but to what end essentially and masterclass mm-hmm. profits while doing
0: this and to that argument there's also additional layers beneath so you can look at the pick and shovel thing as almost like a pyramid in a way or basically a chain because just as much as Masterclass is offering this, there could be something else even behind the scenes. So for example, AWS is a great example, like oh, Amazon Web yeah. Services. Uh, it could be the software that was created for them to efficiently capture and scale up content. So I actually didn't see Masterclass as actually being that close to picking pick and shovel because it's a consumer brand. And I would argue that Consumer brands, for the most part, aren't really pick and shovel type businesses. It's usually something that you've never heard of or like very low key in the back end. Like, for example, Shopify is not really a consumer brand. It's more of a B2B brand. But I guess that analogy still holds true. I'm not going to say it's inaccurate.
1: I think the analogy holds true in the sense that it's anyone offering something that facilitates someone else. Doing what they want to do or doing what they think they want to do, which in the case of Packy's article is Shopify enabling DTC brands. And in masterclass is the case of providing lessons to regular general audiences who want to be screenwriters and professional chefs, etc. Like there's a the person so, hunting for gold and then the people supplying the tools to hunt for gold.
0: Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you was that in general, the democratization of something is seen as positive, but we've seen in the digital landscape, it's actually been arguably negative or it doesn't, it hasn't had its intended consequence. It hasn't had its intended outcomes. So while Shopify was trying to make it available for everybody in the end, they actually made it harder for everybody. If you zoom out far enough, Mm, right? Likewise, could you look at mm, like social media as another example? where basically it flattened everything and provided everyone with a voice. So what I'm trying to ask here is that the scale and ease and convenience, and we've talked about convenience in digital tools before, in what way can we preserve and provide value to those that are willing to essentially tough it out and go a more difficult path?
1: But isn't there some kind of net positive in the democratization of tools allowing independent individuals who otherwise could not do this to do it in the first place. I mean,
0: Patreon is a good example, right? Maybe that's me answering my own question.
1: Yeah, but Patreon obviously profits as well off of the people on Patreon because they take a cut of fees. So I'm not saying that they are not in the pick and shovel business, but they've enabled so many people to consider an option that otherwise wouldn't exist. Yeah. I wonder I wonder if the issues kind of come when you're trying to be something of a certain scale. Like, you know, they compare away and some other luggage brand. And if you were away, then you were able to profit because you were first. But then if you wanted to be a second away, it just is no longer possible.
0: That's not necessarily true because if you're the second one You've basically copied everything the first one's done, right? In, in essence, the only thing Away has is brand. But they've also spent a lot of money on whether it is production R&D, a lot of things. So in reality, being second isn't the worst thing because he uses an example where Away has, let's say, 450 employees while the new competitors have a fraction of that. Mm. And somehow they're able to still exist.
1: That's true. The copycat is way more lean.
0: I'm I'm also trying to think what are things that in themselves allow you to have some sort of protection or moat. And, you know, amidst all this, the reason why Apple is so successful is because it has many things going for it, right? And most tech companies generally have high barriers to entry, but, you know, they have this massive... Ecosystem that has allowed them to exist because they have hardware, they have software. Uh, what else do they have? In general, you could argue that Apple does so well because it has many pieces. Because, for example, Samsung doesn't really have an app store, right? They basically have to work with the Android marketplace. Yeah. So that would be an example of where Apple has been able to succeed and or build like these uh, alternative moats.
1: Kind of coincidentally as an announcement, though I feel like we've mentioned it before on making yeah, it Yeah, we've up, mentioned it before. We are launching a shop where we'll be releasing different types of products we've created in collaboration with some friends, and it will be running on Shopify. So for full transparency, feels like we should tell people, not that we said anything particularly... Good or bad, or otherwise,
0: yeah, I mean, I think when we made that decision because we actually had something built into the back end of WordPress, but it just it was too complex and it was hard to change things. And Shopify was let's say eighty five percent good to go out of the box, right? And for us, we do have some things going for us where, you know, there was a mention of paid acquisition and brand being the two core components. and We do have two degree brand and there's nothing stopping us from doing paid acquisition. So that already kind of made sense. But we recognize that I don't think an e-commerce platform is going to make you a ton of money at our scale, which is also okay because it wasn't intended to operate as that type of lane, I guess. The fact that it exists and it's somewhat risk free. Sure. Why not? Give it a try.
1: Did you shop around at all? Before landing on Shopify
0: did zero did absolutely zero. And it just wasn't something that I was that price sensitive about. It was more about because, and this may be a bad recurring theme for us, but we're fortunate for us to not have to be super price sensitive and just do things that we feel are interesting or cool. And what I mean by that is don't give me extra headaches on the base of trying to claw margin. Right. Like I'm not I don't need to preserve margin because ultimately for me, like it's not that same sort of livelihood component that we need this to work. And it's a make or break situation and or it fundamentally changes something.
1: What I was going to say, I wasn't trying to rag on you for not doing price comparison, but you know how you said that Shopify or people in the companies in the pick and shovel business aren't really consumer facing but actually, Shopify and Patreon are still like verging on consumer facing because they're the brand, they're the company that we immediately think of. There mm. might be Shopify and Patreon equivalent copycats actually as tools, but we yeah. gravitate towards the one that we know.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: okay. So, like we said at the beginning of my subject this week, we did something different and asked our Discord community, which subjects they were interested in hearing more about. So just wanted to read a couple of things from the Discord in reference to Packy's article. This comment comes from SM Tilney, who said, I found number six to be a super timely read. I was talking about the ubiquity of Shopify with some friends yesterday with increased competition and money flowing to the top. Facebook, Google ads, Amazon, etc. I think we'll see ad spend continue to find more curated outlets like niche ad networks and newsletters. I'm curious if there will be an ad format that will infiltrate paid communities like this one where it benefits both parties in an unobtrusive way. So I think that was quite interesting because that's kind of referring to the conclusion of Packy's article about innovation in not in allowing people to step around Shopify, but in allowing people to step around advertising barriers. And not having to compete in that arena with, with your resources.
0: Is there anything else you want to read?
1: And then another comment from Skurbs later on in this conversation. I find stuff like Gary V and Shopify plug-in marketplaces super wild because everyone is selling these quick fixes and hustles that are supposed to provide crazy returns, but they are based on revenue increases and neglect profit. So every email provider, ad buyer, theme setup, AOV payment, upsell tool, chatbot tool, et cetera, is pulling a percentage of sales and fees. And it results in negative margins for everyone, but the people shilling the services in a lot of cases. Most Shopify businesses don't have 80% gross margins to play with. And for context, skirbs runs his own company. And so kind of this very specific, I, I appreciate that individual perspective of where he's clearly tried these things and like looked into the fine print of like, what is this going to cost me versus like, what could I possibly benefit?
0: All right. That's a good place to cap things off.
1: Yeah, I think so. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Macon.
1: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com C-H-A-R-I-S or Eugene at Eugene at macon.com E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you.
0: I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.